You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. Acts 13, okay? Acts 13. Last week, we started a series called Naval Gazing which is a challenge of lifting up our eyes to see what God is doing in the world when our eyes may be downcast at ourselves. I'm just going to read the passage, and then I'm going to start. Acts 13, uh, let's start at at the beginning, verse 1, okay? This is, we started at the the end last week. Here we go. This is the beginning of the ministry of Paul. Acts 13, verse 1, I'm going to read a verse 12. Follow along. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, likely from Africa, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, doing kind of similar what we we are doing this morning, the Holy Spirit, as we just sang about, that we're anticipating what he's going to say. This is what he says to those guys. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And then after they fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Verse four. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there, they sailed to Cyprus, which is still called Cyprus, modern day, same island. When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician. Now you've got to think less of like David Copperfield, more like one who dabbled in the like dark magic pagan arts as a a Jewish false prophet named... Ironically, Bar-Jesus. Interesting. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. uh, A man of intelligence, sorry, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamis, same guy, that's Bar-Jesus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, that's his Greek name, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, If you don't mind, sir, if it wouldn't be too much trouble, that's not what he said. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. You ever, you ever ad- addressed someone like that? You know, welcome them into your house and you're the son of the devil. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And Paul's not done. And now behold... The hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. 
Immediately mist and darkness fell upon this man, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul, that Sergius Paulus, believed when he saw all that had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. That's the first story in Paul's journey. Nice. Hey, it might happen a few times. That was like an amen from the, from the Ferrari. Thank you. Might be a few of those. We might have to take a lesson from the cars. Last week, when we opened our introduction in this series called Naval Gazing, you may have been challenged and thought to yourself, okay, Aaron, I'm going to start. I'm going to start sharing my faith. I'm going to start evangelizing to the people around me. I feel the call of God. And you are filled with excitement, anticipation for what God is going to do. That might be you, okay? I can guarantee you this. There will come a point early on where you will face obstacle and opposition. And it usually comes at the beginning, before you even get going. There's a famous missionary story um, that I once read. It was about these missionaries who, who went to a Polynesian island to share the good news of Jesus. And they met the chief. And the chief is, welcomes them in. I mean, at that point, they're, they're you know, European settlers. So he thinks, you know, this is a time to do business with these settlers, with these, uh, with these, British, with these British men. But these men were not what you would assume are the bad examples of colonization, they were literally there just to share the faith, not to take advantage of the people. So they meet with the chief and everything is going splendidly and they think, man, isn't it amazing that God sent us here? We've already had a meeting with the chief and the chief tells them, I'm going to give you a gift for being here. So they think they're really excited. You know, everything's going really well at the beginning. Well, that night, the chief's wife shows up at the door. And the missionary, these two missionary young gentlemen, open the door. And the chief's wife says, I've, I've brought the chief's gift. And they're really excited about it. Culturally, though, the gift was the wife. It took them a while to understand what she was getting at. They were so full of shame, thinking that they had misled this chief, that the next morning they packed up and left. They felt like, I can't even do what God has called me to do. I'm so full of shame. I can guarantee you that no matter how much excitement and anticipation you have and think, God has called me to this, there will come an obstacle and opposition, and it will usually come near the beginning. The enemy wants nothing more than to shut down that desire that God has placed in your heart than before it really gets going. If anyone is a camper or you have campfires in your backyard, the hardest part of building a fire is when? It's the, just getting it going. It's a challenge, especially if you've got wet wood, just to get it going. There's usually a lot of sm uh, smoke, but very little flames at the beginning because beginnings are typically the hardest. The enemy wants nothing more than to leave you discouraged and think, man, I'm never trying that again. 
Paul and Silas in this passage are sent out from the church in Antioch. First place they go is a place called Cyprus, which is still the Cyprus of today. They haven't planted any churches yet. They haven't written any letters yet. They haven't performed any miracles yet. They only have the support of one church in Antioch. They're not known amongst all of the other churches where eventually Paul writes all of these letters like the churches of Galatia and Philippi and Corinth. They don't know any of those people. They don't know Paul and Silas. They have very little experience not a, lot of, uh, not a lot of knowledge amongst the churches. This is why beginnings are so hard and we're so prone to quit because you don't know what to do until you know what to do. That's the, begin- that's the reality of when you're trying to do something different that you've never done before, no matter how much excitement that you may have in your heart, the beginning is going to be very difficult. There was little that they knew at this point, very little context to draw from. But they didn't know nothing. I am encouraged by one thing that they did at the beginning. Antioch was a church throughout its history that had a history of, as what happened to Paul and Silas, had a history of raising up people and sending them out. Okay? Antioch was doing that. Like throughout Acts, you see in Acts 11, 12, and 13, Antioch was, had a history of raising up people and sending them out. And Paul and Silas seems like they bring that value because they don't go alone. Who do they bring with them? John. Hopefully everyone read with me as they bring John with him. As it says, uh, when they are, uh, 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 from there they sailed to Cyprus and, 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 and they had John to assist them. So they bring John. This was the same person who was also called John Mark, eventually attributed to the writing of the gospel of Mark. Same guy, but also, maybe you didn't know this, in direct, maybe in direct consequence of this, he became known as Mark the Evangelist and went on his way and established the first church in Africa. So Paul and Silas, what they knew was that we need to apprentice people, raise people up, send them out. That's what happened with Mark the Evangelist. They arrive at Cyprus, though, with very little context. They go to a place called Salamis, and things are going well. They start sharing the news. They go into the synagogue. They start telling the, preaching the gospel to people. In fact, things are going so smashingly well, they get their first big break. Someone summons them to hear the message that they're telling people. And it was none other than not just lowly Aaron Ottaways of our community, but the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, is like, I want to hear the message that these guys are sharing. As it says, he summoned Paul and Barnabas and sought to hear the word of God. A proconsul was kind of like, best way to describe it would be kind of like an MP. It was one who really had little authority on their own, but they were appointed by the Roman Senate to govern a region. And Sergius Paulus's region to govern was Cyprus. So you had the power of the Roman Senate behind this man, and here it, we, things are going so, imagine this, things are going so well, Restoration Church. Imagine we took the challenge and said, God, we're going to start sharing our faith, and now like MPs and MPPs are like, we want to know what you guys are doing and the message you are proclaiming. And we would all be like, amen. We'd start sending out prayer requests. We'd start sending out prayer cards to other churches. We'd be riding that high. And that's what I'm sure Paul and Silas were doing. 
we're doing so good that it strikes the attention of the MP, and on the drive over, probably to Paphos to see Sergius Paulus, they're probably going, at least this is me, I'm like kind of putting myself in the story. I'd be, you know, going back and forth, and be like, okay, okay, Paul, uh, you know, you'll say this, and then Silas, you'll come in, like, out of nowhere and say this, and we're going to lay, it's going to be boom, he's going to accept, he's gonna, if he has this question, you know, I'll handle that one. If he asks this question, you're kind of better at handling that question. We got it. What could go wrong? Right? We're, look what God is doing. How could it stop? And of course, they meet their first obstacle along the way, which is a man named Bar-Jesus, a man with a very ironic name. Bar-Jesus, or Elamis, which means wise or has to likely referring to his magicianry, one who dabbled in the supernatural and pagan practices of the land. If you didn't know this, Bar-Jesus simply means son of Jesus. So he called himself, his name was Elamis, referred to his magicianry, but he also called himself son of Jesus. First person I thought of when I'm reading the story is like, he's a very Jafar-like character, right? Kind of like, you know, the royal advisor, but kind of dabbles in dark arts. Like, that's kind of the picture I got. You know, in pagan magic, he was, interestingly, though, he was Jewish and also called a false prophet. So, which means he's probably proclaiming the, the word of God, but doesn't believe what he's actually proclaiming. He's a false prophet and also calls himself the son of Jesus. It's this fascinating syncretistic mix or mash of religiosity and the supernatural. And in verse 8, it says, this man sought to turn the proconsul away from the faith, which is simply an active prevention of others to, sh- to the sharing of the gospel. And you think, oh man, like, we drove all the way here, we get there and we've got like our speeches nailed. But what do you do with that? You meet Jafar. <laughs> like what do you do with that? All of a sudden there's this obstacle. What experience? Let's say you, it, this is going to happen. Like if you take the call of God to go preach the gospel to people, you're going to meet some people in some dark stuff. And then what do you do with that? What experience are you going to draw from? I mean, they didn't have any experience with this. This is like the Bible school student, like I went to Bible school, that you know, knows how to write the paper, but doesn't know how to deal with an actual person. What do you do with that? I think in some ways I would be tempted to pack it up. Well, this, this was a good run. You know, we'll tell everyone proconsul wanted to see us. It was a good run. There have been times in Restoration Church when we've brought an, had an obstacle in the way, and I'm thinking, well, Colin, Ruth, it was a good run. You know, praise the Lord, but I'm done. This is too hard. I did not get trained for this. Bible school didn't teach me this. What experience do you draw from? I mean, if it was just a good run, Acts would be over at chapter 13 and this series would be rather short. I can guarantee you, as I've already said, that whenever God calls you to something, an obstacle will come into your path and you'll be left with a decision. And what do you have to draw from? From where do you draw the strength and the boldness to respond? 
I think it, we would sell this passage short if it was just like, simply do as Paul does here. You start calling people sons of the devil. Now, I don't want to dull the passage either, because maybe. Because his response is quite something. And maybe in Canadian culture, we might need to learn some lessons from, what, from the forcefulness that Paul uses. We do tend to be very nice, but not very sincere in our words. Canadians are kind of like nice liars. We're okay with not being sincere as long as we're nice about it. Paul is the opposite. He doesn't lie, but he's also not, you know, he's not, he's not on the nice side with his words. You're being left with a decision. There is something that Paul had from the beginning, though, that I think is the key to this passage. Look what it says in verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, who told them to set apart for Barnabas and Saul? Whose idea was this? Holy Spirit's idea. Wasn't the church of Antioch's idea to go? Whose idea was it? Everyone say it out. The Holy Spirit. Say it louder. Whose idea was this for them to go to Cyprus? Whose idea? The Holy Spirit's. Verse 4. So being sent by who? The Holy Spirit. Okay, we're not, we're not, no one's saying, people aren't saying this enough. Who, was, who sent them to Cyprus? The Holy Spirit. Verse 9, it says, when they approached Bar-Jesus, Saul, who was called Paul, who was he filled with and that energized his response? Who was he filled with? The Holy Spirit. All through this passage, it's that the Spirit was leading and filling them as they went. When God calls you to something, you're going to experience opposition, but I also believe this, and this is an amazing truth, that when God calls you to something, he goes with you and empowers you to do what he calls you to do. Amen? He will. If you commit yourself to the Lord, he goes with you and empowers you to do what he calls you to do. And it's an amazing truth. You are here. You could be here at church being like, Aaron, I'm just trying to fill the empty dissatisfaction with how I feel. I feel helpless to know how to serve, what to do in this world. That's why Ephesians says, don't be drunk with wine. Don't try to control yourself or let something else control you, but be what? Filled with who? The Holy Spirit. To do what Jesus does, to be truly human, to be who you are, you need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. There's no other way around it. Like, that's what empowered them to do what they did in this passage. Here's what I really believe, Restoration Church brothers and sisters. If you sincerely open yourself up to God and give him control. Like, if this morning you're like, I, I sincerely give up control of my life to, to God. And you say, God, I am willing, wherever the Spirit leads, I fully believe this. that God will lead you. And while you can't get bogged down with the burden of the entire world, you can't save the world, the Spirit will lead you to specific people in your life. I truly believe that. If this, if this morning you're like, Holy Spirit, lead me, He will lead you to people. And then you're left with the decision of whether I'm going to do, where the, do what the Holy Spirit is leading me to do or not.
Paul didn't initiate this conversation with Sergius Paulus. Who initiated it? Sergius Paulus. You know, the Holy Spirit led them to this man. They just had to make a decision to now go and share. And by faith, the Spirit will empower you to have boldness when an obstacle comes. See, I think we need to be corrected that the, uh, the definition of boldness, boldness doesn't come from being filled and led by the Holy Spirit. I think it is being, fil- fi- being filled and led by the Holy Spirit. Boldness is being filled and led by the Holy Spirit because we think boldness is just being loud, being forceful, but boldness is being led by the Spirit. Boldness is when to speak and when not to speak. It's when to be forceful and when to be gentle, when to rebuke and when to, when to encourage. Because in our passage, you have two very different approaches to two very different people. We can't just say, okay, do what Paul does with Bar-Jesus because he doesn't do the same thing with Sergius Paulus. You have two very different approaches to two very different people. Bar-Jesus, Elamis, why does Paul use such forceful language? It's probably your question. That was my question. Why does he use such forceful language? I think that begs on the question, or based on the question, why does Bar-Jesus seek to actively turn Sergius away? And I think the obvious answer was his position was threatened. He was threatened by these, these men. Here is someone who uses the veneer of God for his own gain. That's why he's called a false prophet. He uses God's word, he uses God's supernatural power for his own gain. Even uses the name of Jesus for his own gain. A Jewish false prophet, but only as a veneer. But he's blending whatever he can use for his own gain. You see what I'm saying? That's Bar Jesus. Who one commenter said, Willie James Jennings. This man was trafficking spirituality. Whoa. But opposing the spirit. Trafficking spirituality, but opposing the spirit. Someone who wants to use God, but not submit to him. That's why Paul says you're full of deceit and villainy. Did you see that in there? Son of the devil. Uh, enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Basically what Paul is saying is you're a con artist. It's not real. You're a con artist. Uh, let me just say this. This is kind of a sub-point. There's always a greater threat to true Christianity, much more than secularism. A greater threat to true Christianity is masqueraded Christianity, much more than secularism. We might fear secularism in Canada, masqueraded Christianity is far greater threat to us, to any Christianity, to any true Christianity than secularism. It's when someone uses Jesus for their own gain and their own power. It's always a greater threat. That's why Paul says, you make crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Beware of the one who uses Jesus' name but doesn't walk in his way. Beware of that person. Literally taking, breaking the commandment, using the Lord's name in vain. Paul exposes the reality, right? 
Whether Bar-Jesus actually was using the name of Jesus of Nazareth or just its meaning, which means salvation, saying son of salvation, or he might have been using actually Jesus' name, son of Jesus. That's how Paul takes it. That's how Paul spins it. Because what does he say? You're no son of Jesus. What are you? You're son of the devil. If there is someone standing between one and the kingdom of heaven actively opposing, you actually might need to expose reality. That's what I learned from this passage. You actually might need to expose reality. Probably be a little bit more forceful than you're comfortable being. If there is someone actively standing between someone and the kingdom of God, you might need to expose reality. If there is a boyfriend keeping a, a girl from the kingdom of God, Brother, sister, you might have to have a really hard conversation. This, this, this guy is not good for you. You need to expose reality. If it's a friend group that you, you know someone is in and they are keeping them from being exposed to the kingdom of God by the power of the Spirit, you probably have to have the boldness to call it out to that person. Hear what I'm saying? How we do it typically is we just call it out behind their back. Like, can you believe that person is with that person? That's not good for them, but we don't actually say it to their face. You might judge Paul's use of words. At least he doesn't hide it. It's right out in the open. There's no vague Facebook posts in this passage. Paul exposes reality by simply saying the words. On the other hand, let's not get bogged down with Bar Jesus because there's another person in the story. We cannot miss Sergius Paulus. Paul calls out at when he says, you know, in, his, in this passage, you son of the devil, enemy of all righteousness, will you stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? In verse 11, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You're going to be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness, they fall upon him and he's lost, looking for someone to lead him. After that happens, it says in verse 12, uh, the proconsul believed. When he saw what had occurred, and I'm always I'm blown away by this when I read it through. When he saw, saw what happened, which is a crazy thing to see, what was he astonished at in verse 12? The teaching. Strange. Someone is just blinded supernaturally. You think that would be crazy. But Sergius Paulus was blown away by the teaching. I'm assuming it was the simple sharing of the faith, of the faith, of the good news. It seems like afterwards, Paul and Silas simply shared the good news. And more than what happened to Bar-Jesus, Sergius Paulus was astonished by it and believed. You see what I'm saying? In no way could Paul and Silas have been prepared for this, and yet they were led by the Spirit to respond in radically different ways. But by the Spirit, they had the same goal. And what was the goal? That people would give their life to Jesus. That's the goal. People were saved. The proconsul believed. I think somewhere along the line in our goal and our mission, our aims can get skewed that the goal of why we do this actually changes. Because what is the goal? What's the measure of success? It wasn't the miracles. It wasn't the judgment. It wasn't the confrontation. It wasn't the arguments. It wasn't the we told him, didn't we, Silas? The goal was what? Someone gave their life to Jesus. That's the goal. The Spirit empowers you, brothers and sisters, to go and make disciples. 
I love the passage in Hebrews 1. It talks about angels, how these ministering spirits are sent out into the world. And it says the reason that they do that is so that they will work on behalf of those who are to be saved. That's the goal. Aaron, doesn't that sound like an agenda? Depends on what you mean. Agenda sounds bad, doesn't it? Agenda sounds bad. If by agenda you're trying to control the narrative, you know, using a bait-and-switch method, I'm only friendly and loving if you follow Jesus and then I'm not if you don't, well then yes, agenda is bad. But I also think it's possible to use that as a reason not to share. I think my generation, our resounding call when it comes to evangelism is I don't want to have an agenda that has given us a very clean reason to never share our faith. However, if by agenda means you have a goal, you have a commission, then as Christine Kane once said, heck yes, you have an agenda. To reach the people the Spirit leads you to who are empty to follow Jesus, they too would be filled with the Spirit and they too may walk with God. Even those that you might not be sure about. I do love in this passage, and I'll close, close, close with this, because we can write off bar Jesus. I love in this passage, though. After Paul's words, he exposes reality, calls him to be blinded, but I love what it says. You're unable to see the sun for a time, so it wasn't going to be permanent. I think in some way, Paul, who does he see through this character, bar Jesus? You know, he uses harsh language, cause, not because he hates bar Jesus. Who does he see through this character? Himself. He also was blinded temporarily. He was the one searching around for someone to lead him. He was the one whose heart was broken before God and exposed for who he really was. And for the first time, rather than using God to depend on him and finally lead, first time being helpless and needing direction in his life. Paul didn't use harsh words because he hated this man. He saw himself in this man. But he knew this man needed his reality exposed and to be helpless before God. The goal is, and who knows the end of the story of Bar-Jesus? I don't know. That's up to Bar-Jesus, whether he's going to respond. But the goal always isn't the miracles. You know, it's not the speech. The goal is that someone gave their life to Jesus. This is our goal, Restoration Church. I really believe that if you sincerely pray to God and say, God, lead me, he will. And then you have a decision to make. God, thank you for your word, that it exposes the reality of our own hearts. I think all of us in this room must be challenged with the commission, the goal the agenda that we have been given to go and make disciples of all nations. We will have obstacles come our way. If we are not empowered by the Spirit, we will fall away. We will. I don't have the strength. Our church does not have the strength. If we are not empowered by the Spirit, we will fall away. We ask, Lord, now, that our heart's posture would be, Lord, guide us, lead us, fill me, and you will. You promise to. You promise to go with us and empower us no matter what comes our way. 
no matter how much lack of experience, lack of context, lack of education we have, it is by the Spirit that we are empowered to do the ministry of God and to evangelize to our world. So Spirit, come, fill our hearts. I pray for this in your name. Amen.